if you selectively deprive people of sleep and then you ask other people to rate how attractive they look, then they rate them as being less attractive after sleep loss without knowing whether they've lost sleep or not. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high performance mind, body and lifestyle. I'm very excited to be here today with Greg Potter. Greg helps a range of people to perform at their absolute best from elite athletes to CEOs and to people who who have mood disorders. Greg and I actually met at the Health Optimization Summit dinner back in September 2019 and uh, I've been trying to get him on the show for a while because he knows everything about sleep and optimizing your nutrition and metabolism. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Greg. It's great to have you on. Thanks, Angela. I I wish that I knew everything about sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you seemed very knowledgeable to me over dinner. I'm I'm good at pretending. (laughs) You're good at pretending. I think you have a PhD, don't you, on this topic? I do, yeah. And that makes me a doctor, but not a real doctor. So I should actually have introduced you as Dr. Greg Potter. No, Greg's fine. Greg's fine. (laughs) Um, so you've been working with some athletes as well, sprinter in particular, to get four gold medals at the European Championships. Was that in relation to sleep optimization in particular, or no, it wasn't. Generally? So my background is actually in sport and exercise science. Mm-hmm. I studied sport and exercise science for my undergraduate degree at Loughborough University, and in my first year, I was mentoring coaches in various different sports. And I started mentoring a guy called Mike Leonard, who's a sprints coach. And near the end of the year, they needed somebody to step in and coach a group of university athletes. And Mike put me forward for that role. So by near the end of my first year of my undergraduate, I was working as sole coach to a group of university sprinters. And then I continued that work throughout my undergraduate degree and also after a year out after that degree, I went back to Loughborough to do a master's in exercise physiology. And during that time, I also worked as a sprints coach. And so that particular work, helping the sprinter achieve those gold medals was at that time. And it probably sounds more grand than it actually was. So that particular athlete has autism. And so he, he competes in a category with not as many other people as the European championships that most people would think of. Mm-hmm. But also it's, it's a fascinating process working with somebody like that because it's really an exercise in communication. And some of the difficulties that he faces, of course, make the whole process more rewarding too. So I, I really enjoyed that period of time. But then near the end of my master's degree, I just realized that I didn't want to continue just focusing on sports performance for the rest of my career and that I find my career more, more fulfilling if I could help people with their health and performance too. And really what I'm interested in is developing solutions to help improve the health of people who need it the most And the reality is that those people are often people who don't have lots of money. So the question is, how can you create something which scales well and is cost effective and is delivered in a way that actually supports behavior change for all those lifestyle behaviors that are so important to long-term health? 
Yeah, for sure. So do you, do you do that now? Do you have programs where you work with people on that basis? Is that in, in group situations or is that through online programs? Yeah, so I, I do a bit of one-on-one work online, helping people with their health and performance. And some of that focuses on sleep specifically. So I get some referrals from some psychiatrists who send patients who perhaps are experiencing lots of anxiety or aren't feeling great about life at the moment and have concurrent sleep problems. So that's some of my work. But I spent much of last year trying to develop an app or trying to build a prototype of an app to achieve what I was speaking about before. So helping people with their health more broadly and doing so in a way which scales well. But the reality, of course, is that that's very hard to do. There are lots of apps that are trying to do that at the moment. It's a very crowded space. I'm not convinced that it's a very competitive space because I'm not sure that many of those apps are very efficacious right now. But that's completely understandable because it's such a hard problem. So how do you track people's behaviors and health outcomes in the most ambient way possible and then deliver timely guidance to them in a way that they're receptive to and in a way which actually supports long-term behavior change? That's a really complex problem. Mm. And a lot of the methods that are currently being used are arguably a little bit behind the science. And there have been developments in behavioral science and related sciences in recent years that aren't really being leveraged at the moment. But that project has probably fallen through. It's certainly indefinitely paused currently. But if there are people listening to this, which might be the case, hopefully it is the case, who are interested in accomplishing something similar, then I hope that they reach out to me because I'm still very keen on pursuing that. I'm just mulling over what the best way to go about that is at the moment. So that's what I'd like to do at some point. But right now, more of my work is one-on-one with individuals, but I'm also doing some other bits and pieces, helping to formulate some dietary supplements, for example, and doing some public speaking, some content creation stuff. And the nice thing about content creation, for example, is that it does tend to reach lots of people. So hopefully through media such as this podcast, we can give some people some good information, which might just make them think twice about some of the things that they can do to, in this case, sleep better or improve their metabolic health. Yeah, brilliant. Well, let's dive in um, because I think you have a lot to share on that front. So let's start firstly with sleep, because this is a common thing that I see with many of my clients. And then we can maybe talk about the behavior change in a moment. I mean, I would say we're the only animals, aren't we, that basically ever postpone sleep. And I know that when I was a lawyer, I definitely didn't respect it enough. I do now. Um, yeah. But what would you say in terms of people that are trying to wake up feeling energized and refreshed? Um, my understanding is that we need a certain amount of deep sleep and REM sleep. Uh, both of those are important to help with emotional regulation and memory. What are things that people can be doing beyond the obvious of restricting blue light in the evening, et cetera, to really help them get a quality night's sleep? Great question. And it's a question that really would require a very long answer, but I'll try and keep it relatively concise. To pick up on something that you mentioned, certainly different stages of sleep are important. 
there's some overlap between what the different stages of sleep are important for. So for example, both REM sleep and deep or slow wave sleep are important for memory consolidation, but also the different stages of sleep have some distinct effects too. So I think a lot of people focus on slow wave sleep and deep and REM sleep, but it's important to realize that each stage of sleep does serve important functions. So I wouldn't necessarily focus too much on those because the other thing is that for people listening to this podcast, there aren't currently good ways of tracking REM sleep or deep sleep, which lots of people will use. So wearable devices, for instance, might tell you that they're measuring your deep sleep and your REM sleep. And maybe they'll produce some sort of hypnogram within the app that accompanies them where you can see, oh, okay, at 11 p.m., I was in deep sleep and then at 12 p.m. or at 12 a.m., I beg my pardon, I was in REM sleep. Right now, I don't think the technology is good enough to be able to make those inferences. Perhaps in a few years' time, those devices will be good at sleep staging, but I'm not sure they are at the moment. With that said, these different sleep stages do tend to change over the course of the lifespan. And there's been some work, for example, looking at ways to help prevent the degradation in slow wave sleep over the lifespan. Because what typically happens is you find a loss of slow wave sleep as people age, and that can contribute to both some neurological disorders, but also just some simple changes in function. So for example, poorer recall of certain memories and so on. So I, I don't want to make it out as if slow wave sleep and REM sleep aren't really important and it's not necessary to do what we can to preserve them, but just wanted to begin by making that comment. So your question was about what we can do to sleep better beyond the things that everybody knows about. And I think most people understand that, most people listening to this at least, will understand that it's important to expose ourselves to lots of high intensity light during the daytime. So spending plenty of time outdoors and then to minimize our exposure to that type of light at night, certainly within two hours or so of going to bed and while we're in bed and then perhaps shortly after waking too. So if you put that to one side and also the fact that it's important to keep the bedroom dark, then Another factor would be physical activity. So if you look at all of the different studies that have been done on physical activity, then it seems that regular physical activity helps people fall asleep faster. It improves their sleep quality. It might prolong sleep slightly, and it might also improve sleep efficiency such that people spend a greater proportion of the time in bed actually asleep. So most people listening to this will know that Physical activity and exercise are important to sleep, but I still want to just gloss over these. Another is nutrition, of course, and you don't want to go to bed either hungry or too full. You don't want to eat too late at night because when you consume food, your metabolic rate will increase for a period of time thereafter. And that, of course, is accompanied by an increase in body temperature. And as you fall asleep, what you should find is that your core body temperature declines. So if you consume too big a meal too late, then you're going to interfere with that decline, which is going to make it harder for you to nod off. So that's another factor 
Another factor, of course, is caffeine consumption. And I generally suggest that people restrict their caffeine consumption by about nine hours before bedtime. Another factor is alcohol intake. A lot of people historically have used a nightcap thinking, oh, if I, if I just have a shot of whiskey or whatever, an hour before bedtime, then that will help me sleep. And when people consume alcohol, they do tend to fall asleep faster and they spend a greater proportion of the early sleep period in the deeper stage of sleep. But then later in the evening, their sleep tends to fragment. And for people who snore or for people who have sleep-related breathing disorders, such as obstructive sleep apnea, alcohol being a muscle relaxant tends to exacerbate those problems then if you measure people's function the day after drinking, they tend to be cognitively impaired, for example. So that's another low-hanging fruit for some people. But another thing, of course, is use of certain devices around the sleep period. So there's been an increasing amount of research in recent years looking at screen time. And when people watch TVs or iPads or phones, in the two hours or so before bedtime, what tends to happen is, A, they are exposing themselves to more of that type of artificial light, which could delay their body's clocks and thereby their sleep. But the light also has independent alerting effects such that their brains will be running hotter than they otherwise would, if you like. But then also there's the content of what they're watching, which might be very stimulating, and that could interfere with sleep onset. And then, especially with the likes of Netflix, it's quite common to watch things where the service will automatically queue up another program as soon as you finish whatever you're watching, and people lose track of time. And because of that, they also tend to lose track of their internal sensations of sleepiness, such that were they to pause for a second and tune into how they feel, they maybe realize that they're sleepy. But if they don't do that, then they'll just carry on watching. And then all of a sudden, they're going to bed an hour late than they otherwise would have done. And they have to wake up to an alarm clock the next day, which truncates their sleep and then leads to a host of negative consequences. So those are some of the obvious things to address. But then there are some slightly less obvious things, which tend to be especially important for people who are having sleep problems. So if you are temporarily or chronically experiencing insomnia, so maybe you're finding it hard to fall asleep, or maybe you're finding it hard to sleep through the night, or maybe you just don't feel like your sleep is refreshing, or maybe you're waking up very early and all those things might occur, even though you're giving yourself enough time in bed, then one of the things that people tend to benefit from is actually stopping napping. Because when you nap during the day, when you're very tired, what you'll tend to do is you'll tend to pay off some of the pressure that's built up in your body to go to sleep. And then when you try and fall asleep subsequently after the nap that evening, it will take you longer to fall asleep. And also your sleep won't be as deep as it otherwise would have been had you not napped. So for people who have insomnia, cutting napping can be very helpful. And I'm not saying to never nap because napping when used judiciously is very helpful in certain instances. And certainly if you're doing something which is safety related, so if you're driving and you're feeling drowsy, then you absolutely should take a nap just to preserve your own body. So cutting napping for people who are struggling with sleep can be really helpful. Another really important factor, and 
if I had to give one tip to help the people listening to this podcast sleep better, it might well be this, is to save your bed for sex and sleep only, and actually preferably to save it for sleep only. You can have sex wherever. But the reason I say that is that what tends to happen when people sleep poorly is they tend to spend more time in bed in the hope that if they spend more time in bed, they will get more sleep. So if they just do something relaxing while lying in their bed during the daytime, maybe they'll fall asleep and have a quick nap. Or if they go to bed early than they otherwise would have done, then that's a longer opportunity to sleep. So they'll get more total sleep. But what happens is they quickly learn to associate their beds with being awake. And there's this idea of stimulus control of behavior. And what's happened here is that the stimulus, namely the bed, has led to wakeful behavior. So that's the stimulus control of behavior. And what these people need to do is learn to reassociate their beds with being the place of sleep and nothing else. So what that means is not spending any time in bed when they're doing something which would, they, they would do when they're awake. So that could be reading a book or watching a program on an iPad or whatever. It means only going to bed when you're actually sleepy. So if, for example, you're experiencing insomnia at the moment and you think, yeah, I should go to bed at 10 p.m. regardless. If you're not sleepy at 10 p.m., you should not go to bed because you'll just lie in bed staring at the ceiling thinking, why can't I sleep? And then you're actually perpetuating your problem. So first, only go to bed when you are sleepy. And then also the other side of this coin is that it's important if you wake up at night and can't fall back to sleep to get out of bed and do something relaxing in a different room and then only return to bed when you are sleepy and people speak about this as the so-called 15 minute rule or the 20 minute rule so if you've been lying in bed and it's been 15 to 20 minutes and i say that as if it's a definitive period of time it's not and i don't want you to ever watch the clock in bed or anything like that but if you feel like it's been roughly 15 20 minutes and you're not sleepy and you're not falling back to sleep you should get out of bed maybe go to the living room and do something relaxing and kind of boring in dim lighting so that could be doing a crossword for example it could be reading a book just with a little lamp on in the corner of the room it could be doing a meditation and then after 20 minutes or so you should check in with yourself and think, am I sleepy? And if you're sleepy, you then return to bed and hopefully you can then fall back to sleep. So yeah, that's, that's that's, advice, yeah on the sleep, for sure. Yeah. I mean, on all of it, but staying in bed, I've heard that because people create these wrong associations, don't they, with their bed where they feel like, I, I can't sleep, I can't sleep. And then it's very difficult to break that because now you've associated your bed as somewhere where you're struggling to sleep. Yeah, and... This forms part of the basis of the most commonly and the most efficacious treatment for insomnia, which is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And I think it should arguably be called behavioral cognitive therapy for insomnia because much of the time it makes sense to start with those behaviors. So it makes sense to start with stimulus control and perhaps something related to somebody's sleep hygiene. So maybe you're consuming too much caffeine at the moment, for instance, and then what will tend to happen is using stimulus control, maybe somebody's quite sleepy initially and they find it hard because they have to constantly get out of bed and go to a different room and then go back to bed. 
But as they start to re-ingrain that association between their bed and their sleep, their sleep-related thoughts tend to improve too. And then you can introduce some of the cognitive therapies, which typically would relate to things like rumination. So it might be allocating some time during your daytime to worry about things, for example. It could be using certain strategies to help you relax when you are in bed. So in those instances, when you wake up and your mind is racing, before you've reached that 20-minute mark, are there things that you can do to quieten your mind? There, there absolutely are. There are lots of different means of accomplishing that but some of them are counterintuitive so one of them for example is called paradoxical intention and in this therapy the idea is that you're in bed it's a dark room and if you try and fall asleep it will actually perpetuate your sleep problem on the other hand if you gently open your eyes and you try and stay awake relaxed but awake what tends to happen is people fall asleep shortly thereafter and then they, they wake up later thinking, that's really strange. I, surely if I'm trying to sleep, then I should fall asleep faster. If I'm trying to stay awake, then I, I should be able to stay awake. But the contrary is often the case. Other ways of relaxing might be simple breathing exercises. There might be visualization exercises. There might be other strategies used to quieten the mind and quieten the body. So some people might temporarily just do a brief meditation while in bed at that time, which isn't something that's widely used, but certainly there's some evidence that meditation could positively affect sleep, especially in people who have lots of anxiety. And then there are some other things. I have a question to, actually on that, on the work meditation, because I know yeah. about some things, I know some people will advise use meditation Actually, obviously, it's a great thing to use in the morning, but you can use it at nighttime to help you fall asleep. But then I've also read, like if you look at um, Emily Fletcher's work on in Stress Less, Achieve More, she talks about how an, um, a meditation at, say, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, a 15 to 20-minute meditation, can give you the same rest as though you'd had a nap and actually almost put you through, in terms of energy, a sleep cycle. And so my question there is, that's obviously earlier in the day, but could people find that actually the meditation, particularly say they went into another room and they did a meditation, they then wake up so, not wake up, but kind of come to so revitalized that then they don't feel they can sleep? Or have you found the evidence is to the contrary and actually it helps induce sleep? Good question. And it's difficult to give you a clear answer. So one thing to note is that the type of brain state that different types of meditation or the types of brain states that different types of meditation will lead to are distinct from those that you would experience during a nap. So while there might be some similar consequences of having a nap and spending the same amount of time doing meditation, they, they are distinct. So I, I'm not sure that the comparison is really a valid one. And I also don't know if there's ever been any work comparing the restorative effects of a lunchtime meditation to a lunchtime nap, for instance. So that's that's one consideration. But what I would say is it very much depends on the type of meditation. And meditation is a really tricky thing to study, of course, but there's been some work looking at different types of meditation. So you have open awareness meditation in which you're just sitting quietly 
and you're open to anything that arises, be it thoughts or feelings. And there's another type of meditation, which is sometimes called loving kindness meditation. There are different types of loving kindness meditation, but in that type of meditation, you are simply wishing people or wishing beings well. And comparing those two states, what you tend to find is that loving kindness meditation will actually temporarily produce an increase in arousal. So it might have some mild alerting effects. If you look at somebody's heart rate variability, for instance, it might drop after doing that type of meditation. Whereas after doing another type of meditation, so an open awareness one or some sort of focused attention one, so maybe you're focusing on your breathing specifically, you might find that your heart rate variability increases after that type of meditation. So there's a lot more work to be done on identifying when it's best to use those different types of meditations. And I think a lot of the work that's looked at some of these brief meditation interventions, so whether they're delivered through smartphones, for instance, has looked at quite simple interventions. So maybe, for example, somebody's just doing the same 10-minute long meditation each day for a period of eight weeks. And the reality, of course, is that if you have a good meditation teacher, then you will go through a series of mental training exercises and meditations that are chained together in a way that's designed to meet your needs as they evolve in the same way that if you have a good personal trainer, you're probably not going to keep doing the same workout day in and day out. As you get stronger, you're going to need different stimuli in order to continue to improve your physical being. Mm -hmm. So that was a slightly roundabout response. But, but what I would say is that I think for most people, it's probably smartest to meditate at the start of the day. And the reason I suggest that is that lots of people find it hard to build that into their lifestyle as a consistent habit. And at the start of the day, we often have a few minutes to ourselves. So just pragmatically, it makes sense. But then also it can have some acute and residual influences on our mental states. So if you wake up with a racing mind in the morning and you're concerned about everything you need to get done that day, and maybe you're feeling slightly anxious about those things, then just pausing for a second or pausing for 10 minutes and doing a meditation can help you quieten your mind and regain a sense of perspective, which is going to help you better navigate those upcoming stresses the following day. Mm. But also you, you mentioned lunchtime there. I do think that lunchtime is a good time to meditate. And the reason is that our body's biological clocks, so our, our circadian system specifically, which is a system of different so-called clocks in our bodies that produces rhythmic changes in our biology. And these rhythmic changes recur every 24 hours or so. And it does this in order to optimize our bodies according to time of day. But th this system produces a temporary dip in wakefulness around lunchtime. People know this colloquially as the post-lunch slump. And because you have this nadir in cognitive function at that time of day, you're probably not going to be massively productive at work anyway. So it's a prime time to do something like meditation, especially if you have close control over your schedule. And the reason that we have that dip at that time of day is probably an evolutionary one. So if you think about our ancestors, then especially 
our distant ancestors who lived near the equator, it would have been very hot around midday. And so it would make sense for them to avoid the sun at this time of day. So in this way, our biology has been programmed to stay out of the sun then with this dip in wakefulness. And we therefore tend to function best both physically and cognitively, but more so cognitively a little bit earlier and a little bit later than that. Physically, we tend to actually peak in the sort of late afternoon, certainly for strength and power outcomes. So very roundabout answer, but I'd say it's, it's hard to give you a definitive answer at this time. But I think for most people, A, meditation is a really good thing to do. B, doing it early in the day is just going to help you ingrain as a habit. Mm. C, doing it at lunchtime does make sense. But D, I don't think that saying, I don't think it's possible or even wise to say that a lunchtime meditation is equivalent to a nap. Mm -hmm. I think it might just give you the same energy benefits because apart from anything else, you've kind of, um, I'd have to look back at the research she puts in the book, but you are kind of clarifying your mental state and taking a step back. And that's quite restful mm -hmm. in terms of then the afternoon productivity. But something that I notice um, a lot with my, my own clients and does come up in terms of sleep and I think increases with people as they get older is this concept where people will wake up at sort of maybe half four or five in the morning mm. and then they say to themselves well that's just far too early to get out of bed so they'll lie there and I see it when I track it on my clients or a ring they'll be awake and then they'll lie there and then eventually fall back asleep around six o'clock in the morning maybe, mm -hmm. and then pick up another hour, an hour and a half. And what would you say to people who are regularly waking? I know that can be in response to high pressure. Maybe there's a rise in cortisol that's waking them. Mm. In that situation, are they better off starting their day earlier? What would your advice be? Because that has a knock-on effect the following night as well, presumably. Yeah, so my advice would be to, again, apply that principle of stimulus control and to start there and also to track sleep for a period of time. So you mentioned the ring there, but I'd, I'd probably have people track sleep with a sleep diary. And there's one available online at the bettersleepproject.com that people can use. Also, especially in the UK, it's possible to get access to a CBT for insomnia program called Sleepio. And the Sleepio app is quite useful for tracking sleep. And Anyway, what I was going to say is that if people track their sleep for a couple of weeks and, and they find that this is a consistent problem and their sleep efficiency is really not very good at all and it's interfering with their daytime function, then first, of course, you'd, you'd want to seek guidance and something like Sleepio is something that people can use and some people will be able to access it for free too. But after applying stimulus control and finding out how somebody is sleeping, then a natural next step to use is something called bedtime restriction therapy. And what this usually entails, and again, this is typically done under the supervision of a practitioner. But if, for example, Angela, you found that you were spending 10 hours in bed each evening, but you're only asleep for six of those hours, so your sleep was 60% efficient, then during bedtime restriction therapy, you would delay your bedtime, keep your wake time the same, and do so such that you're now only spending six hours in bed each evening. So if previously you're in bed from 10 p.m. until 8 a.m., so 10 hours in bed, you might now be in bed from 2 a.m. until 8 a.m. 
So you're only giving yourself the opportunity to sleep, which corresponds to the actual amount of sleep that you're getting before that period. And what you'd find during this time is it's really hard and you're really sleepy, but very quickly the quality of your sleep would improve and those nighttime awakenings would become less frequent and shorter. And then as your sleep consolidates and you continue to track your sleep, once your sleep efficiency is above a certain threshold, which typically is about 85% or so, so you're spending at least 85% of the time in bed actually asleep, then you'll start to move your bedtime slightly earlier. So if you were going to bed at 2 a.m. previously, maybe you now go to bed at 1.45 a.m. And when you've done that under supervision for several weeks and you've consistently moved your bedtime earlier, provided that your sleep is remaining efficient, what you then hopefully find is that now you're sleeping through the night, you're also spending enough time in bed to get as much sleep as you need and your sleep is more like what it once was. But certainly that that's not always appropriate for everyone and all sorts of different things can cause people to wake up too early or to not be able to sleep through the night. And some of those different things can be flagged during a, a good interview with somebody or a good analysis of the person's lifestyle. So maybe, for example, somebody's consuming alcohol and that's causing their sleep late in the sleep period to fragment. Or maybe somebody is very stressed at work and the inclusion of some sort of stress management practice such as meditation could help them there. Or maybe it's something to do with a medication that they're taking or to do with their metabolic health. So you mentioned cortisol dysrhythmia. What you should find is that shortly before you wake each day, there's a large spike in cortisol synthesis. And the purpose of this is to prepare your body for the day ahead. It's in anticipation of the day, increase your blood pressure to ready for physical activity. It mobilizes various stores of energy in your body to give your muscles the nutrients that they need to function during the daytime. But when people are very stressed and during certain mood problems, for instance, you might find a change of this rhythm such that in a healthy person, you've got this big spike in cortisol early in the day and then cortisol wanes later in the day. And then during the sleep period, it reaches an adir and is very low. In people who aren't so healthy, you'll see a smaller morning increase in cortisol. And then sometimes in anticipation of the sleep period, you'll actually see a rise in cortisol. So this is common to see in insomnia. And one of the reasons for this, of course, is that these people are terrified of not sleeping well. Mm. So they think, oh God, bed, bedtime is approaching and I'm just going to be lying in bed. And I'm not going to be able to sleep. And they get stressed and worked up about it. And then the cortisol response that occurs and locks up with that exacerbates their sleep issues. So for somebody like that, doing certain things to correct the cortisol rhythm, which again would include some sort of stress regulation practice, but also it could include things like physical activity and, and maybe certain nutritional strategies of changing that cortisol rhythm or, or helping to reduce nocturnal cortisol levels could help that person. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I found that. I think sleep, as you say, is something that it kind of almost just happens to you. You can't make it happen. Mm. It's a little bit like falling in love. You can't just go out and expect, well, I'm going to meet someone and fall in love today. It just would happen if it was there. And if you give yourself the best opportunity by taking the steps that you've spoken about and you lie there in a darkened room in a state relaxed with mm. the ability, you know, making it as 
um, accessible as possible that you could fall asleep, then it kind of just almost comes over you as opposed to the more you try, that it's almost impossible to make yeah. yourself sleep. Exactly. Like, and, that, and, and that's why it's so important also to have a regular pre-bed relaxation ritual. Mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't need to be anything that's too monotonous or too forced or too rigid, but certainly in the two hours or so before your anticipated bedtime, you should be doing things that help you systematically wind down. So that can be things like listening to relaxing music. You should be dimming the lights at this time, of course. You shouldn't really be consuming anything that contains calories or certainly any stimulants or anything like that. But you should be doing something which is relaxing and fun. And you know that, that could mean something like watching TV for some people. But again, it's, it's being able to pause at that time and, and check in with yourself to see how sleepy you are. It could mean reading a book. It could just mean doing something with your partner. So maybe you're playing a ball game or something like that. But you should, especially if you're experiencing dif- difficulty sleeping, have some different things that you can try to help you quieten your mind before bedtime. And one thing that's really helpful for people who are type A personalities who are trying to accomplish lots of work is making a to-do list for the next day. Mm-hmm. There's been some nice research by a guy called Michael Scullin, who's at Baylor University, which basically looked at what happens when people make a to-do list shortly before bedtime and its effects on transient insomnia. If you take somebody and you have them sleep in a novel environment, then during the first night, they don't sleep as well. It's called the first night effect. And again, it has an evolutionary basis. If you're sleeping in unfamiliar surroundings, then it wouldn't be smart to just go into a condition in which you are completely unresponsive to your environment. So when you sleep somewhere new, it's as if your brain is half asleep. So that first night somewhere new, you typically don't sleep as well. And what he did was he had people sleep somewhere new. And then during this first night, there were two conditions and in one condition, he had people make a to-do list for the next day, listing as many things as possible and as much detail as possible. And basically found that when they did that, they fell asleep faster. And interestingly, it seemed to be that those who listed things in greater detail experienced that benefit to a greater degree as well. So simply having a physical diary and making a to-do list for the next day with pen and paper And then maybe keeping that diary by your bedside during the sleep period can be really helpful. And the reason I say that is that sometimes you might wake up at night and think, oh, I forgot to list that. And if it's by your bedside, then you can just jot it down, get out of your mind, and then do something relaxing to get back to sleep. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a great tip. I guess one one question I have in my mind is, I know that, um, you know, like Dr. Michael Bruce has done quite a bit of work in terms of chronotyping people and whether people are, you know, an early morning person or a late night person. I know when I've looked a little bit at genetics, it seems that there is some evidence that some people are more of a morning type. And in that scenario, you might find that you've got a couple who actually are on slightly different um, <laughs> chronotypes. So it's, it's actually, I actually notice it with my, with my own mum. I know that my dad's a massive night owl and would love to stay up late and watch TV. And my mum will inevitably then fall asleep in front of the television and go to bed. And this pretty much has happened her entire life where she then Mm. says, I can't sleep very well. And, you know, I've never, 
done a DNA test on them to check. But it would seem sensible that if you are tired earlier, then maybe you do need to go to sleep a bit earlier than your partner rather than staying up late because that that nap is so reviving that you then struggle then to sleep through the night afterwards. Yeah, it's, 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 it's ironic that you've mentioned this. I've just moved in with my girlfriend mm-hmm. and I am a morning type to the nth degree and she is a night owl. <laughs> and this is exactly this is exactly what I've been oh. going through for the last 10 days or so. And it is hard. Mm, and yeah. it's important to recognize that most people don't sleep by themselves. So if you look at adults, then most adults sleep with a partner most nights of the week. And it's a really tricky one. And there are different things that can be appropriate in different instances. So sometimes it's it's going to just be a question of having a discussion with your partner and then trying to help the night owl be a bit earlier and then the early bird making some adjustments to and, and going to bed a bit later and then meeting in the middle. But at the extreme, it, it occasionally makes sense to so- have a so-called sleep divorce in which you, you sleep in separate beds. Because if, if you constantly get poor sleep, then it's going to catch up with you over time. And I know that I've seen patients myself. I can think of one particular lady who was a real early bird and the rest of her family simply weren't. And she had terrible insomnia and and she felt like she would naturally fall asleep 8 p.m. but had to be up each evening until 11. But then each morning, half four rolled around and, and she was wide awake. So she had such a restricted period of time in bed that she couldn't get much sleep and it was negatively affecting her mental health but also her metabolic health too, of course. So for somebody like her, you know, it's, it's going to entail some difficult conversations, but also it's important to educate everybody about the importance of sleep and try and come to a solution which is agreeable for all parties. But I wish I could give you a clear answer on what I think is best, but I think it's so dependent on the, on the couple mm. and when people can understand just how widespread the consequences of sleep disruption are, they'll start to recognize that if their partner's not sleeping that well, then they won't get the best version of their partner. And that's the person who they fell for. And if that's the case, then then maybe that will help them make some of the changes and accept that that's how somebody is. But at the same time, People are flexible in their, in their chronotypes. Yes, there are extremes. And yes, chronotype has a genetic basis. And it seems to be somewhat heritable. It's probably something like 40 to 70% heritable. But most people are relatively flexible. And it also could be the case that, for example, night owls respond to certain stimuli to a greater degree than morning larks. So, for example, It seems to be the case based on a limited body of research that night owls might be more sensitive to the circadian phase delaying effects of light at night. So if you you took an early bird and a night owl, you you expose them both to light at night at the same circadian phase. So maybe for the early bird, that was at 8 p.m. And maybe for the night owl, that was at 1 a.m. The night owl would shift later to a greater degree in response to that light stimulus than the early bird would. 
So it, it can be a question of just making some changes to sleep hygiene. And the other thing, of course, is that when you take people and you put them in the types of conditions in which humans evolved over millennia, then the disparity between the earliest birds and the latest night owls tends to decrease dramatically, such that after just a few days camping, for example, in the presence of light only from natural sources, the early birds won't really change their timing at all, but the night owls will all shift earlier. Mm. And the difference between the earliest and latest person will be really quite small by the end of just a few days. A lot of it's just driven by our modern environments. The fact mm. that our streets are artificially lit at night and we have round the clock access to food and we don't have to be physically active. So for the night owls, improvements in their lifestyle tend to shift their biological rhythms more than early birds who are, who are really just quite strongly anchored earlier in the day. So actually then the people that are the night owls, there's an argument to suggest then that if they were to go out and get some early morning sunshine, that would help to, they may not feel like it, but that would actually start to help align them a little bit more. And as you say, both of you can then be flexible. The thing I'm finding in our house, and this is a temporary situation, obviously, but it will last a few years, is that as our boys are approaching well they're adolescents now but as they're approaching their teenage years their clocks are definitely shifting and so they are now starting to wake up later and at weekends they want to go to bed later and both my husband and I are very early morning people naturally you know (laughs) we're the ones at a dinner party that are thinking okay now it's 1am you really need to have gone home because Mm. we've gone way past our bedtime and so when we're not entertaining we will naturally go to bed earlier but our boys are not necessarily feeling ready to go to sleep and that is another problem as a parent is that you because you don't want to leave them up much beyond you on their own but yeah I guess absolutely and again that probably has an evolutionary basis so there are some people who hypothesize that during adolescence it's a time when people begin to become more independent and that shift in chronotype helps them come together and be independent for a period of time each day before they eventually flee the nest. So that's that's one consideration. But mm. I mentioned earlier that night owls might be more sensitive to certain stimuli, just as one instance. They might be less sensitive to some others, but it's definitely the case that during adolescence, sensitivity to the phase-delaying effects of light increases. And then also this this is a natural phenomenon. So if you look across the lifespan, then it seems that women on average are at their latest at about 19 and a half years of age, and men are at the latest at about 21. And both of those time points really coincide with physical maturity, so the the end of adolescence. And that is just a natural process. And of course, it's been problematic because lots of people have to wake up early for the start of school or whatever. Mm. And what we've seen in recent years is some people have delayed school start times to try and account for this natural change in sleep timing over the course of the lifespan. And the people who have looked at this so far have basically found universally and unequivocally positive results of enforcing later school start times. It doesn't seem that adolescents go to bed much later if you give them later school start times they just wake up later so they just get more sleep 
And then as a result, presenteeism is reduced, absenteeism is reduced, grades go up, traffic accidents go down, and it can have dramatic effects on things like the economy too. So there's been some mathematical modeling by Marco Hafner from the Rand Corporation, which estimated that over the course of a decade or so, it would save the US economy billions and billions of dollars if schools in various states just delayed their school start times to 8.30. So it's it's a societal issue as well. But for you as a parent, I, I recognize that it's really tricky. And the other thing, of course, is that while they're getting later, so let's say that you've got a 15-year-old and that person is still getting later, for you as an adult, you're now getting earlier. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. when kids are first born, their body's clocks are, are really quite scattered. That They're not consolidated. They don't have clear sleep-wake cycles. During infancy, they, they start to consolidate a pattern and then they will get later such that very young kids are very early types. And then by the end of adolescence, they're at their latest. But then after that, people get earlier and earlier, pretty much to the grave. So if you're a 50-year-old with a 15-year-old daughter, then you're getting earlier while your 15-year-old daughter is getting later. And of course, that's going to lead to some issues. And I think it's just it's important to respect both of your sleep, but also as a parent, do what you can to help your child be in an environment which is conducive to them sleeping well to support sleep hygiene. I can think, for example, of myself. I remember being 17 and I, I knew nothing about this stuff at the time. I was fascinated by nutrition and physical activity, but I wasn't so interested in sleep back then. And I had this big blue light in my bedroom. <laughs> I know now retrospectively that that was a terrible idea for my sleep, but just those things like getting devices out of your kid's mm. bedroom. So there's no TV in your kid's bedroom and trying to help them avoid liters of energy drinks and hopefully going to a school where they recognize the importance of sleep and then also doing things to help them wind down at night and, and teaching them about the importance of some of these things might beneficially affect them, but also you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think you made the point earlier about physical activity improving sleep. And I certainly noticed that. I think that's not just the case with adults, but also with children. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of sport. And, you know, if they've had a period where they've maybe done a little bit less in school holidays, they're going to be a lot more wakeful than when they've done the volume of sport that they normally do which just mm. helps them to sleep better and they're much less inclined to try and stay out late on devices or talking to friends. That definitely seems to be the case. What, what have you found with, because this interests me a great deal. I, not long ago, uh, had a, a, I've tested my genetics a few times, but this was an updated one where I discovered that I do have a copy of the APOE4 gene. Mm. And so at that point, I was kind of thinking, well, Perhaps sleep needs to be made even more of a priority for me. Now, I've looked a little bit at this in terms of we know that the brain kind of washes itself at night in terms of the buildup of plaque and things like that. Mm -hmm. How concerned as adults do we need to be about this and also the amount of sleep? Because I'm not sure, you know, I, what came up on my report was that I... Um, was somebody who actually naturally didn't need as much sleep. And so it was less than seven hours is what came up. And I know the general guidance is seven to nine. Now, I don't know how accurate that is. Mm. Um, but I guess, yeah, there's two questions there is 
we obviously need to make sure that we're getting enough quality sleep to protect ourselves. And, and it has a big impact, doesn't it, as well on things like anxiety and depression and mood disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the amount of sleep. Is there a one size fits all for the length of sleep or is that very individual as well? Yeah. So the short answer is there is, of course, not a one size fits all prescription for sleep duration. And again, to go back to the idea that sleep changes over the lifespan, this is true of sleep duration as well. So if you look at a newborn, they're going to spend upwards of half their time asleep. And during adolescence, people are going to need more sleep than during adulthood. And then for 18, 64 year old adults, the recommended amount by the national sleep foundation is seven to nine hours per night. But the amount that you need as an individual will change on an ongoing basis. So people who live lifestyles that are in accordance with the natural environment will tend to find that if they don't live at the equator, then during the long nights of winter, they'll sleep more than during the short nights of summer, for example. They'll find that if they're just starting a new exercise training program, having been sedentary for a while, they'll sleep longer than they otherwise would. They'll find that if they're fighting infection, their sleep will change. So sleep is very dynamic in that way. And you mentioned this genetics report and the fact that it predicts that you might need less sleep than other people. I don't think that we know enough about genetics to be able to say that, just just being completely honest. And I'll direct people to a talk that my friend Tommy Wood did recently. If they search for Tommy Wood Ancestral Health Symposium 2019, he does a really good job of explaining why people misinterpret genetics data because we just don't understand genetics that well at the moment. And with respect to sleep, yes, there are genetic variants which associate with certain sleep phenotypes. And yes, there are very rare mutations in certain genes that lead to extreme sleep phenotypes. So for example, there are mutations in period two gene which lead to advanced sleep-wake rhythm and what that means is that people just go to bed much earlier than other people do. So perhaps four hours earlier for an individual at a given age. And there are genes that lead to short sleep phenotypes too. So the first of these that was identified was a mutation in a gene named DEC2. And people who carry that particular mutation seem to need barely more than six hours per night on average. And they also seem to be slightly more resistant to the negative effects of sleep loss on certain cognitive outcomes. And then more recently, the same groups that identified that particular genetic variant have found another mutation in one of the adrenoreceptor genes that leads to a shorter yet sleep phenotype, such that those people need less than six hours of sleep. But that, that really is the extreme. Mm-hmm. So I think when it comes to identifying the amount of sleep that you need, it's really a question of removing the barriers to you sleeping well when you can. And practically, that will probably mean sleeping as much as you can during a holiday. So not using an alarm clock for a period of time, but then also doing away with some of the things that can truncate your sleep. So those things would be things like caffeine consumption and perhaps alcohol consumption, certainly alarm clock use. And then what you'll find is that you'll probably sleep quite a lot initially, but then over time, 
your sleep duration will begin to stabilize, which will give you a clearer idea of how much sleep you need. But again, just bear in mind that the amount that you need is a moving target. And you spoke about the roles of sleep in brain function and neurodegeneration. And that's a subject that we, we know a fair bit about. So abnormal sleep is very common in certain diseases, Alzheimer's, Huntington's, Parkinson's. And it seems that sleep disturbances do precede those diseases and sometimes by decades. But while that's the case, I'm just a bit reluctant sometimes to discuss some of those findings because if you take somebody who's already concerned about their sleep and anxious about their sleep and you tell them that if they don't sleep well, then everything will be ruined, then you just make them more anxious about their sleep. Yeah, of course. Perpetuate their problem. Yeah. Yeah, so, so rather than focus on that, what, what I've tried to do more of recently is just discuss the fact that when people improve their sleep or extend their sleep, they tend to experience a bunch of benefits. And, and this is true of cognitive function too. And also if people can go through a period of time when they get more sleep than they have been getting, that will help them protect themselves against the negative effects of any subsequent sleep loss too. Does it though? Because So can we explore that a little bit? Because I, hmm. you know, some, some sleep specialists will say, well, you cannot catch up on sleep. So yeah. anything that's been lost in terms of the previous night that you've missed out on those vital sleep phases, hmm. you can't now catch up and replace those nights. But what you were saying there is that actually by having a bit more sleep, sometimes you can protect against later sleep deprivation. Is that right? Yeah. So the first comment that you made is slightly, it's incorrect. And the reason is that if you just take two groups of people and you have them spend as much time in bed as they would like at their preferred bedtimes, and then you restrict one of the group's sleep opportunity for a period of time. So maybe you deprive them of sleep entirely for one night. What you will find after that night of sleep deprivation is that the following evening, they sleep longer than the other group does. So they are clearly catching up on some lost sleep, but I don't think that there's any evidence that the amount that people catch up is congruent with the amount of sleep that they lost. That definitely doesn't seem to be the case. And you see changes in the quality of sleep too. So after sleep deprivation, you tend to find higher slow wave activity, for example. So the, the deeper stage of sleep is a bit deeper after sleep loss. So the nature of sleep changes a little bit too in accordance with the lost sleep. So that's one comment. But then the other idea which has been popularized by some people is that of sleep banking. So I mentioned catching up on sleep or sleeping in to protect against the effects of subsequent sleep loss. The idea is that each minute of sleep that you get is like one pound and you're trying to accumulate a certain amount of wealth over time in the coming weeks. So you know you won't be able to save much next week because you're necessarily going to lose sleep. So maybe, maybe you are just working on a project which requires lots and lots of your time. So you try and bank more money this week by sleeping more. Sleep isn't like that in that it doesn't keep a record of sleep loss in that way. You can't oversleep. You can only sleep as much as your body needs. I don't think that you can sleep too much at the level of the individual, despite what some people say. Maybe my perspective on that will change over time, but I don't think it will. But with that said, 
most people despite people saying because there's some research isn't there that seems to suggest that if you sleep the, the health benefits are optimal at somewhere between seven to nine hours and that people who sleep over nine or ten hours per night not children obviously but adults that actually that's correlated with adverse health outcomes over time but you don't are you saying you don't think the research on that's robust what i'm saying is that at the level of the individual Mm -hmm. getting more sleep is almost always a good thing so if if you look at population level data you ask people to report how long they sleep and you track their health outcomes over time then typically what people find is that people who report sleeping about seven hours or so have the best health outcomes but again that's looking at the population most of us have some history of sleep restriction and we probably can't fully make up the sleep loss so most of us have some residual background sleep debt that we're fighting so if we can go through this period of time which we're extending our sleep then we can basically pay off some of that debt again the banking analogy doesn't entirely hold but the studies that have looked at this so far have routinely reported some positive outcomes so i mentioned earlier that it seems that sleep extension positively affects cognitive function. There's been some work looking at sports performance, for example. So Sherry Maher from Stanford did some work nearly a decade ago now, looking at the Stanford University men's varsity basketball team. And they were asked to spend at least 10 hours in bed per night for a period of several weeks. And they found that after that period of time, their sleep duration did increase substantially on average. Their free throw accuracy improved, their three-point field goal percentage improved, their times in a multi-directional sprint improved, their general well-being improved too. And there's been some work looking at metabolic regulation. And the work on this isn't entirely consistent, but it does tend to report that when people get more sleep, they're blood sugar regulation, for example, improves. When you take habitually short sleeping men and you give them a temporary period of sleep extension, then their insulin sensitivity tends to increase and their testosterone tends to increase too. And there's been some work looking at sleep extension and food intake. And you take people who, again, habitually restrict their sleep and you teach them about sleep extension, they tend to sleep a bit more and they tend to make slightly better dietary choices such that they consume a little bit less free sugar. So sugar that's added to foods and maybe they have slightly lower carbohydrate and fat intakes too. So while not entirely consistent, the majority of the evidence so far shows that when you take people who don't get enough sleep on a regular basis and you extend their time in bed and as a result, they get more sleep, they experience improvements to athletic performance, to cognitive function, to metabolic regulation and to decision-making. Okay. Interesting. And probably memory then as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, ghrelin and leptin in terms of your hunger and satiety hormones are better regulated when you're well slept. So you get less food cravings the next day. Yeah. So that, that's interesting in that people used to think that that was the case. So with respect to food intake, what you typically find is that when people don't get enough sleep, they consume more foods. There are different meta-analyses that have been done so far, but the most recent one suggested that people probably consume something like 250 more calories per day when they are restricting their sleep. 
And correspondingly, people tend to gain a bit of weight during sleep restriction because it barely affects how much people move around. So people then thought, well, if that's the case, then maybe that's driven by changes in the endocrine system. Maybe their leptin levels are lower. Maybe their ghrelin levels are higher on average, for example. And so far, it seems that that's not actually the case. So there doesn't seem to be a big effect on average leptin or ghrelin levels. But what does seem to be the case is that you see changes in patterns of brain activity such that people are more responsive to food stimuli. And you see changes particularly in regions of the brain that are related to cognitive control and reward processing. And this is important because it's not just that people consume more food. People tend to reach for more energy-dense, palatable, processed foods Mm. after sleep loss. There's a study that I always mention just because it cracked me up when I first read it that put people in a mock supermarket and then didn't give them as much sleep as they needed. And basically, when they were given a certain amount of money to spend in this mock supermarket, they ended up buying more calories worth of food after sleep loss than when they were sleep replete. And the reason, of course, is that they're they're making these different food choices. So it's not just the amounts of foods that we're consuming. We tend to pick lower quality foods, which are very rich in calories so So all of those driven by based on the studies you've read then not by a dysregulation of hormones but by the fact that they're looking for more energy dense food when they're tired yeah exactly okay interesting i suppose you're you are energy depleted when you haven't had enough sleep so it kind of makes sense that you would then look for that from somewhere else yeah Although at the same time, if people are consuming more calories and they're they're scarcely burning more calories, then actually they're in a positive energy balance Mm. overall. So that's something that is somewhat difficult to reconcile. And common, isn't it, though, with like junior doctors? You know, you'll see that they've they've gained quite a bit of weight when they're in this sleep deprived state and they're reaching for Mars bars in the snack machine and things like that. Yeah. And and, and the other thing to mention here is that, yes, on average, people are consuming more calories because they're picking these more energy dense foods. And this is leading to positive energy balance and therefore weight gain over time. But it's not just leading to weight gain as if these people were consuming more calories than they need while sleep replete, because it seems that the weight that they gain is more likely to be adipose tissue, so fat mass, than if they were sleep replete. And there's been plenty of work looking at the relationship between sleep loss and adiposity. So again, you can look at the level of the population. If you look at all of the different prospective studies that have tracked people's sleep over time and their weight over time, then you find that people who report short sleep, they have something like 45% higher odds of developing obesity in years to come. But then there have been intervention studies in which the researchers will only give people a certain amount of time in bed. And there was one of these that was done a decade ago by some scientists from the University of Chicago, which was really nice. And basically took overweight middle-aged adults. And for two weeks, they were either allowed about five and a half hours of time in bed or about eight and a half hours of time in bed. And they gave them 
controlled diets during this time. So both groups were consuming exactly the same number of calories and so on. And basically what they found was that in the group that was only allowed five and a half hours of time in bed, that group lost more of their weight as fat-free mass. They lost more muscle mass and less fat mass than the group that were allowed eight and a half hours in bed. And one of the reasons for this is likely that the people who had restricted sleep relied less on burning fat for fuel. And of course, they had higher hunger too. So the process of losing weight is not only be less effective if you're short on sleep, but you're going to find it harder because your appetite is going to ramp up at the same time. And but were they not given the same diets to eat? Yeah, exactly. So they, they were given exactly the same diets, but the people while eating the same diets and short on sleep reported being hungrier. So in the real world, they likely would have ended up consuming more calories too. So they would have lost more muscle mass, less fat mass and consumed more calories. Presumably they moved around less as well though, because they had less energy because they're hungry and tired. Yeah. So in those studies, they, they tend to control physical activity just so they can exclusively look at the effects of sleep on energy balance or on energy intake and thus energy balance. That's interesting. And, and of course, this is driven by lots of different things. You know, if, if you don't get enough sleep, then there's more time to eat. There might be some changes in the endocrine system. So we spoke about ghrelin and leptin, but it could be, for example, that you see an increase in the production of endocannabinoids, which tend to stimulate food-seeking behavior. And we spoke about brain activity. So if you, if you just think about the number of food-related decisions that each of us make each day, then they're going to be meaningful over time. So all those different factors conspire to make sleep loss, make weight loss an awful lot harder, unfortunately. Mm. So just on that, because that's interesting, the point you raised there on the endocannabinoid system, you were saying that in people that are sleep deprived, there's more stimulation of that system that stimulates appetite. Yeah. So there are a couple of endocannabinoids that have been looked at. So one is to arachidonoil glycerol and the other is to oleoglycerol. And basically after sleep loss, you tend to see an increase in these. And I think you see an increase in them specifically in the evening. And there's a circadian rhythm and appetite such that most people feel hungriest in the biological evening. And the problem is that nighttime eating tends to be especially obesogenic because of the way that our body's clocks function. So by losing sleep, you are selectively increasing your appetite potentially in the evening, which is the time of day at which food intake is most obesogenic. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really a double whammy in that way. Yeah, I can see that. Okay. So also, isn't there, and you'll know that much more about this, but in terms of when you get into your 40s and you want to optimize things like growth hormone production, mm. doesn't that have to be in the absence of insulin being high? So you need to kind of be avoiding yeah. food for around three hours before bed if you want to have that sufficient release, which in turn has implications in terms of muscle mass. Yeah, so I think people sometimes mischaracterize growth hormone as being a hormone which stimulates muscle protein synthesis and therefore is good for muscle protein balance. And I don't really think of it in that way. I think the weight of the evidence shows that growth hormone is especially important to remodeling connective tissue. 
so to collagen so that's important things like tendon health and ligament health and, and therefore skin. Uh, and skin health of course and therefore also avoiding injuries if you're doing lots of exercise so adequate growth hormone synthesis overnight is going to be very important to keeping our connective tissue healthy and growth hormone synthesis is stimulated by low energy balance it makes sense so if we're not getting enough food then our bodies want to hold on to some muscle but growth hormone of course tends to increase the availability of certain nutrients in the bloodstream that can mobilize some energy reserves too so the question then is does growth hormone synthesis change over the course of the lifespan and, and like you said it does tend to decline with age it's highest during slow wave sleep and growth hormone actually has a so-called ultradian rhythm so you have circadian rhythms which are these rhythms that recur every 24 hours or so but you also have ultradian rhythms which are again these self-generated self-sustained rhythms which are driven by your body's clocks but ultradian rhythms occur over much shorter time spans so less than 24 hours so you can think of your heartbeat as one of these and over the course of the day you have these pulses in growth hormone production and the amplitude of those pulses will decline over the course of your life and if you just maintain a healthy lifestyle which is in accordance with your circadian system so having plenty of physical activity during the day and then making sure that you fast overnight then you're likely to support your body's production of growth hormone during that time and therefore the health of your connective tissue too and i i don't know how much work has looked at the effects of sleep loss on some of those tissues to which growth hormone is so important there's been some work looking at things like sleep loss and circadian misalignment and the effects of those on bone health recently but i, I don't know about work on things like skin or tendon health or tendon mass or tendon tensile strength but it certainly makes sense and just as a, a funny example of why this is likely the case if you selectively deprive people of sleep and then you ask other people to rate how attractive they look then they rate them as being less attractive after sleep loss without knowing whether they've lost sleep or not you see that in their faces and i think that we all know that if we don't get enough sleep then we start looking older faster Mm -hmm. And it, it could be that some of that is mediated by some of those changes in things like growth hormone. Mm. Of course, it's likely, it's likely to be. Sleep really does sleep. exist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> sleep yourself beautiful. And um, I think we're going to have to probably maybe have you back on the show to talk about nutrition because there's so much there that we probably won't have time to go into today because you've shared so much. Um, thank you in relation to sleep. But I do have a question that interlinks with nutrition, and that is, are there certain things that we can eat in the evening that are more likely to help us sleep better and to wake up feeling refreshed? Um, do you think that food plays any part? Obviously, we want to avoid certain things, but are there things that can actually really help to enhance sleep? So I think there probably are, and people have looked at lots of different things. Uh, things that have probably been less or best studied, beg pardon, are foods such as tart cherries. So not regular cherries, but tart cherries specifically. And there are a few studies showing that when people consume tart cherries or tart cherry juice, their subsequent sleep quality tends to be a bit higher. Other people who have looked at kiwi fruit, 
Some have looked at beef tomatoes. And these things contain a variety of nutrients that could affect sleep. And they all contain some plant-based melatonin too, which could explain some of the soporific effects of consuming those foods. So there are, there are foods like those. There are certain dairy products which have been studied in relation to subsequent sleep quality. So for example, some people have looked at comparing milk that comes from a cow milked at night versus a cow milk during the day. And the cow that produced the milk at night will produce milk that contains more melatonin. Mm. And that might positively affect sleep. There are certain peptides in dairy proteins that are used to help sleep, people sleep better. But it's a really tricky thing to study because if you are giving one group of people some kiwi fruits, for example, and another group of people no kiwi fruits, and then you're tracking their sleep over time, then it's probably quite obvious to them that you're studying kiwi fruit for whether it positively affects sleep or not. So nutritional science is notoriously confounded by the difficulty in blinding people to the intervention. So that's a consideration. But with that said, there are a few other things too. So the macronutrient composition of your diet seems to have some effect on sleep, such that higher protein diets, if anything, seem to lead to slightly more fragmented sleep. But I still recommend that people consume high protein diets if body composition and general health is important to them for all sorts of reasons, but I won't touch on those now. There's some work showing that when people consume a relatively high carbohydrate and specifically high glycemic load carbohydrate source at dinner, they may fall asleep a little faster. And the reason is likely that when you consume lots of high glycemic load carbohydrates, your pancreas will produce some insulin in response to that, which will drive carbohydrates in certain cells, but also it will drive branch chain amino acids into skeletal muscle selectively. And as a result of that, there are fewer of those amino acids in the blood, while there are still relatively high levels of the amino acid tryptophan in the blood. And Tryptophan competes with those branch chain amino acids for transport across the blood-brain barrier via an amino acid transporter called the large neutral amino acid transporter. And basically what ends up happening is you might get a little bit more tryptophan going into the brain and tryptophan is a precursor to melatonin via serotonin, which could be what mediates the fact that when people consume things like rice for dinner, they may fall asleep a bit faster. So in that way, macronutrient composition might be an influential factor too. So there, there are lots of different things. And then there's, there's the timing of diet, which I mentioned earlier, which is also important. But there's a trade-off here in that if, for example, you just want to fall asleep faster, maybe you consume a carbohydrate-rich dinner. But if the most important thing to you is your blood sugar regulation, let's say that you have prediabetes or you have diabetes, then... If you control for exercise, the best time of day at which to consume carbohydrate-rich items is relatively early in your biological day. Oral glucose tolerance is about 17% higher at 8 a.m. than 8 p.m. on average. So it therefore makes sense for you to front load your carbohydrate intake. So if you wanted to focus on your blood glucose regulation, you'd want lots of carbs early in your day. But if you wanted to fall asleep faster, then maybe you benefit from having some at dinner, for example. So I hope that makes sense. But 
as is so often the case, the stuff is nuanced and it always depends what you're optimizing for. Yeah, for sure. But what if you took advantage of the fact that, as you, you mentioned much earlier on, that your strength and, and power and coordination is maybe better in the afternoon. Yeah. So if you do an afternoon um, workout, quite an intense one, and deplete the muscles of glycogen, yeah. then if you're not a bit more insulin sensitive, you can have some carbs without too much blood sugar dysregulation. Yeah, and, and it's, and it's I, I think I think it's possible to actually, and I, I did this in a talk that I gave back end of last year, but it's it's possible to look at how your circadian system programs your biology according to time of day, and then use that information to design something like what an ideal day would look like. Mm-hmm. And it would, as you suggest, include strength and power training in the late biological afternoon, which would then offset the evening deterioration in oral glucose tolerance and insulin sensitivity and so on. So I, I think that that's a really smart strategy for people who can make it work, but some people's schedules don't really permit that. Mm, sure. And what I would say is that if that's the case, then I think it's really important that you still exercise. So, and What impact is it with the... Um... You know, we were speaking earlier that some people are do seem to be more of an early morning person. Some people are later. So if we're looking at coordination in an ideal world, as you say, there are many people who, for reasons of work, cannot work out in the late afternoon mm. um, and need to do that earlier in the day. And as you mentioned, it's far better to get the exercise in than to skip it. But is that shiftable as well? Because when you look at the research, It'll give you times that, you know, this is the optimal time to do this or between these two hours. Presumably that is shifted slightly earlier in someone who's more of an early bird than someone who's a night owl. Yeah, and this is maybe a concept I should have mentioned earlier in the conversation, but when speaking about timing, it's important to distinguish between different timing constructs. So you have the social clock, which is the clock that ticks on Big Ben. You have the environmental clock, which is due to the rotation of the sun about the, the earth about its axis and the earth about the sun as well. And then you have your biological clocks, which are those clocks that produce those rhythmic changes in our biology. And people differ with respect to the time of those clocks and that manifests as differences in chronotype. And so what you need is some sort of measure of your biological timing. So maybe, Angela, at 3.55 p.m. as it is right now, it's as if for you it is 2.55 p.m. and for me it is 4.55 p.m., just as a random random example, were you to measure the timing of our body's clocks. And for that reason, I normally speak about the biological daytime and the biological nighttime. So the biological nighttime is the period of time when your body's synthesizing melatonin typically overnight and your body is promoting sleep. And then the biological daytime is when the amount of melatonin being produced by your brain is next to zero and your body is prepared for physical activity. And circadian biologists or chronobiologists typically measure our melatonin rhythms for that reason to identify somebody's circadian phase, their circadian timing. And we can then start to look at these things in relation to the timing of our own biology. But pragmatically, what you normally find is that 
so-called dim light melatonin onset or the sharp spike in melatonin synthesis that occurs shortly before the sleep period happens maybe an hour and a half to two hours before we fall asleep. And then melatonin offset, so when our brains stop producing much melatonin at all, happens around the time that we wake up each day. So I normally say the biological nighttime is from about two hours before bedtime until about the time that you would naturally wake up each day. And you can then use that timing construct in relation to the timing of all of your behaviors. So based on that, we can say, well, the best time of day at which to do strength and power exercise is three to five hours or so before the beginning of the biological nighttime. Or if we were- Three to five hours before- the two hours in which we begin to produce melatonin. Yeah, exactly. So, so if, if somebody habitually goes to bed at 10 PM, you'd probably mm-hmm. find that their strength and power peaks at around 5 PM. It's probably around that time of day, but we can start to use that information to then inform when it's best for them to engage in certain behaviors. So we know that their lunchtime dip in wakefulness is going to occur at roughly this time of day. We know that their strength and power is going to be roughly highest at this time of day. And for that reason, I tend to say, when speaking about diet timing, as we can do in a subsequent podcast, stop consuming any calorie containing items by at least three hours before your bedtime. So I, I, I tend to speak about things in relation to a person's individual bedtime, as opposed to saying something arbitrary like, don't eat after 8 p.m. You know, 8 p.m. for one person might be their bedtime Mm. and 8 p.m. for somebody else might be the middle of their afternoon. Yeah, so it's not you. And I agree with you. But what is so interesting, and and I know like a lot of people that I speak to seem to be the same, is that if my exercise is not done in the morning, it A, becomes much less likely for me to happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And B, like now, for example, today is a day that I'm going to do some late afternoon exercise. Mm-hmm. I know that personally, my workout is going to be way more intense and productive mm-hmm. at 11 a.m. than it is mm-hmm. going to be now approaching 5 p.m. by the time. Yeah. So that's not in alignment <laughs> with what these studies show. Yeah, yeah, but, they would be but, saying, well, no, actually sure. 5 p.m. around, even with what you're saying, the give or take two hours of your own biological clock, yeah. this is when it's going to be best. But my brain's already really quite tired now. Yeah. My mm-hmm. um, willpower is lower. My desire yeah. to m- push myself is lower because I naturally wake up at 5. So 12 sure. hours later, I don't feel like I'm going to be really kind of crushing it do you know what I mean yeah and I'm speaking generalities here and I'm also glossing over studies that basically show that our bodies adapt to some degree to the times at which we exercise so if you look at strength and power performance for example then on average it's highest in the late biological afternoon but if you then put somebody through 12 weeks of a resistance training program in which they train in the biological morning then the morning afternoon difference in strength and power will be pretty much nullified. So the strength adaptations tend to occur according to the time of day at which you do that type of exercise because your muscles have their own intrinsic circadian clocks, which are responsive to those exercise stimuli. Ah, So in that way you can, you can reset the timing of different organs in your body based on your behaviors. So there are always, different levels that we can speak to when discussing these things, but I just try and speak in these general terms, but absolutely our our clocks do adapt to some of those behaviors. And as you suggest, 
things like cognitive load and cognitive fatigue will influence physical performance too. So people like Samuel Markor have done lots of research showing that if you pre-fatigue somebody with a cognitive task, their performance in a subsequent maximal endurance exercise bout will be impaired. And that's likely true of strength and power training to a degree as well. So there are all these different variables that impact things. But in isolation, if you take somebody who's sedentary, they're going to typically be strongest and most powerful in the, in the late biological afternoon if they, if they haven't been doing very cognitively taxing things like podcasting all day long. <laughs> and talking science. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, I think that that kind of clears up for a lot of people, because I know that, you know, there's many people, maybe that is as a result that over time, they've always worked out early in the morning. And so it's very, very difficult to then shift that to the afternoon. And I guess, as you say, their muscles have adapted that, you know, maybe for the last 15, 20 years, they've always had a morning workout. If you try and get them to shift it to the afternoon, they're just, they haven't really got the impetus to do it. Yeah. So, Thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of that today. That was um, absolutely fascinating. Um, I'd love to have you back, obviously, and talk about nutrition and fasting and metabolism and the things that we didn't get to. But thank you so much for coming on the show. Great. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. It was a bit of a long one as Greg had so much value to share there. But hopefully you've got lots of tips in terms of how to optimize your sleep. Greg actually speaks at lots of events, so you can find him at several international biohacking events, and you can also hook up with him on Instagram and Twitter at Greg Potter PhD, or go over to Greg's website, which is www.gregpotterphd.com. And if you want some simple practical steps that you can take to optimize your sleep, then I have a free sleep mini course that you can take. You just need to go to bit.ly forward slash smart hyphen sleeper that's bitly forward slash smart hyphen sleeper thanks for listening remember to review and subscribe you can grab the show notes the resources and highlights of everything angela mentioned over at angelafosterperformance.com you can also snatch up plenty of other goodies including the highly helpful angela recommends page which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind body and lifestyle.